following is a presentation of WYM, Westminster Youth Ministry. Oftentimes, we can use statements that aren't meant to be taken literally. This is the use of hyperbole. In this series called Mic Drop, we are going to look at those mic drop moments where Jesus uses hyperbole for the purpose of getting a point across. Throughout this series, we will look at these statements and ask, what did Jesus say? And what is Jesus teaching us? We hope you enjoy. Matthew 5, verse 27 to 30. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this evening. And thank you for this time that we can come together. We appreciate the McDonald's and their willingness to let us use their barn this evening. Just ask that you be with us as we study your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so for the next seven-ish Wednesday nights, roughly throughout the rest of the summer, minus a few weeks where we're going to be doing trips, we're going to look at some of the difficult sayings of Jesus. We're going to look at the, the, the way that Jesus uses a particular figure of speech called hyperbole. You all know what hyperbole is? Okay, hyperbole uses exaggeration or some sort of unrealistic statement to create a strong emotional response. Okay, we all do this in our daily conversation. We all have hyperbole that we use. We use it as humor to communicate a point, right? We use hyperbole to get an extreme point across in our conversations. Here's a couple examples of hyperbole so we can kind of understand what we're talking about. When you say someone is older than dirt, that is hyperbole, right? Because dirt does not die. Therefore, no one can be older than dirt. This is just a way of saying someone is really, really old. If you say, man, she is fast as lightning, Obviously, she's not as fast as lightning because lightning's very fast. Usain Bolt on his best day cannot run as fast as a bolt of lightning. This is just a way of saying someone is very, very quick. They have tons of money. That's hyperbole. When you say someone has tons of money, in a digital world where we use cards and online banking, no one really has tons of money. In fact, I did some math, which is typically dangerous. But a ton is 2,000 pounds. 2,000 pounds of $100 bills would roughly be $98 million. This is a lot of money. It's a lot of paper money. But for someone to have tons, which is a multiple of a ton, they would only have $196 million, which is a lot of money. But in the world that we live in, say, I mean, Elon Musk just bought Twitter for how much? Do you all know? $44 billion. That means he would have to have 4,400 tons of money in order to buy Twitter. So to say someone has tons of money just really isn't realistic. It's hyperbole. I'm so hungry I can eat a horse. You may be really, really hungry, but I guarantee you, you cannot eat a horse. How much does a horse weigh? About 600 pounds. But you couldn't eat a whole horse is what we're trying to get across. Most of us couldn't even make it past the 72-ounce steak challenge if we tried, let alone a horse, which is 10,560 ounces. When you say your feet are killing you, your feet aren't taking out weapons and trying to murder you. Okay. This is just hyperbole to explain that your feet really, really hurt and you want to sit down. That plane ride took forever. Planes either land or they do what? They crash. Both of those have what? They have a clear end, which means it didn't take forever. One last one, and then we'll jump into our content here. I've told you this 20,000 times. Okay. 
you didn't keep a tally of how many times you told somebody that. You're simply using hyperbole to say, I've told you this so many times I'm tired of saying it. Okay? If you took the time to write down all the times you, you said something to somebody, that's pretty impressive. And you have a lot of free time on your hands. So the point of hyperbole is to shock and awe us, right? The point of hyperbole is to get a point across by using something extreme in order to get us to think. So this evening, what we're going to do is we're going to look at something that Jesus tells us, and we're going to look at some hyperbole that he uses. And what we're going to do each week is we're going to ask two questions. We're going to ask, what is he saying? And then we're going to ask, what is he teaching? So essentially, what is he saying and what is he really, really saying? So tonight, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, 27 to 30. And kind of our main point for this evening is I want us to think about how Jesus cares what we do with our bodies. Jesus cares what we do with our bodies. So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27, going to verse 30. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So this is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is really trying to point out a lot of legalistic tendencies that we have. So when we look at God's law, we often try to figure out what's the bare minimum I need to do or what is the way I can get around this. And that's exactly what he's doing here. He's trying to point out their picture of adultery. They're viewing adultery as what? The actual act of adultery. But what is Jesus saying adultery is? Yeah, so it's, it starts where? Yeah, it starts in your heart. So he's saying you've already committed adultery if you've begun that process in your heart. Right before this, he says that we have murdered somebody simply by being angry with him. Again, that's some more hyperbole. It's not the actual killing. It's not the actual act of adultery. Sin begins in our heart. Okay, and all those things are not good. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. But the start of that begins in our heart. He's approaching the sin of adultery, and he speaks about it through this lens of lust. So lust is the Greek word that's used here. It's a desire to turn upon a thing, to have a desire for, to long for, or to lust after or covet, and also carries the implications that the things that are being sought for are forbidden. They're not just something that's out there that's good, like you know, a donut. Donuts are good. You can want a donut and desire a donut, but if it's not your donut, then you shouldn't go after it, right? Here, Jesus is saying the desire that someone has is they're longing for something that does not belong to them, that's not theirs. Again, he's trying to expose our own hypocrisy here. He's trying to expose the way that we think about this. Jesus has a clear message for us. What is he telling us to do? If we are lusting, what are we to do with our eyes? We're to tear them out, right? Go pluck them out, both of them. And what is he saying we should do if our hand causes us to sin? Chop it off, right? His reasoning is, it's better for us to lose one of our members, to lose an eye or to lose a hand, than for us to be cast into judgment. So that's what he's saying. But let's look at what he's really, really saying. 
So what would the implications be like this if we took this hyperbole literally? What would happen? We'd all be blind and handless. <laughs> none of us would have any eyes left, and none of us would have any hands left. None of us would. And that's not even hyperbole, me saying that. Like, literally, none of us would have any. Let's turn to Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 10 to 17 and then verse 23. This is the reason why none of us would have any hands left and none of us would have any eyes left. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, which is a snake, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then jumping down to verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is why none of us could hold up to what Jesus is saying. Because all of us would have to chop off our hands and cut out our eyes. Paul is citing the Old Testament here to talk about the destructiveness of the way that we use our bodies. And if we took Jesus literally... We would also have to, according to Paul, we'd have to cut off our tongues and our lips and our feet. Nothing would be left because all of us are tainted by sin. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 19 to 20. And it tells us this. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. So scripture doesn't contradict itself. Paul is telling us here that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if Jesus truly wanted us to cut our hands off, what we would be doing is we're cutting off part of the temple of the Holy Spirit. So he's not literally telling us, to cut off our hands and pluck out our eyes, but he's trying to get us to understand that we have weaknesses in certain areas of our life, and we need to be able to recognize those weaknesses. We can't honor God with our bodies while also destroying them, so God doesn't want us to physically destroy our bodies, but he wants us to destroy sin. He wants us to look at our sins, the way that we lust, the way that we desire for things, and literally cut those things off. And we can only do that by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is why Paul is emphasizing so much that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells inside of you. And when God talks about the Holy Spirit indwelling inside of us in the Bible, that means that the Holy Spirit is in you and you are His. So our response to that is that we honor God with our bodies. And we are to honor God with our bodies by fleeing away from sexual immorality. And we do this because of what he says in verse 20. We were bought with a price. Which means there's an appropriate response that we have when we look upon what Jesus has done for us. And we look at our sexual sin, we look at our lusts and our desires, and we say, that doesn't fit with the Holy Spirit. I have to flee from those things. Sexual sin is incredibly pervasive. It's something that most people think, oh, I can just get rid of that on my own. I can just stop doing it. I can just stop lusting after people. I can stop committing adultery. I can stop doing whatever it is. But the problem with sexual sin is sexual sin tends to send us into a place of shame. And whenever we go to a place of shame, what do we want to do? When you're afraid or embarrassed or shameful, we want to hide. 
We want to keep it deep, dark, put it in a box that no one can see it, and we'll just deal with it on our own. But God doesn't want that. God's desire for us is that we actually bring those things into the light. John picks up on this in his epistles when he talks about how sin has to be brought into the light in order for the Holy Spirit to actually do some work on our sin, which means that as we flee from sexual immorality, we have to be honest about it. And we have to be able to expose those things, whether it's lust all the way up to adultery. Those are things that are incredibly pervasive, and we need to be very careful. Luke 6, to 45 tells us, The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure of his heart, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So I think one application that we can take from this is that we need to be really careful about the things that we are putting into our eyes and into our hearts. Because according to what Luke is telling us there, if all we're filling our hearts with is just junk, just sexual images, bad language, movies with terrible morals to them, what's going to come out of us? We're going to find ourselves being more sexual in the way we talk. We're going to find ourselves being a little bit more immoral in the way that we do things, right? So we can't just say, oh, those things don't bother me. They really do. Because sin is so invasive. It gets into our hearts and it changes us. But the Holy Spirit changes us even more. So we need to be careful about the types of things that we put into our hearts and into our minds. Because as much as we'd like to think that they don't affect us, they really do. I was reading an article by a woman named Joy Pedro Sharka. Uh, she wrote an article about sexual healing, about people that are caught up in sexual sin. And she was working with a ministry that sought to provide help, hope, and healing for women that were caught up in pornography and sexual addiction. And she writes some thoughts down as she spent 10 weeks with these women in order to seek to help them better understand their sexual sin so that they can turn to Jesus. Here are a couple thoughts that she shared. Satan uses our slavery to addictions to make us question our salvation. Most sexual addiction issues are really intimacy issues. Sexual addiction leads to self-hate. It's hard to remember God's truth in the midst of addiction. The church needs to talk about sexual addiction. When we don't talk about it, Satan thrives in our isolation. These issues are not just a man's problem. They're a people problem. Those in bondage truly desire to live in freedom. We believe the lie that lasting freedom is not possible. We blame our sexualized culture for our addictions, which is true. Our culture does glorify sexuality. But we need to blame our own sin as opposed to just the culture. Finding freedom is not just behavior modification, but it is heart change. Accountability is 100% necessary for continued freedom. In order to heal, we must restore our view of God. And lastly, we can't experience freedom on our own. What she's really trying to just get across there is that this type of sin is always going to take us inside of ourselves, and we want to keep everybody out. But the Holy Spirit can't do work when we're fighting and pushing away and saying, I don't want you to touch this part of my life because I'm too afraid. I'm too ashamed. I don't want you to see the deepest parts of me. One commentator writes that to cut off parts of our bodies that cause us to sin is not radical enough because the lust that's inside of us is still going to be there even if we physically cut off our hands and gouge out our eyes. So what Jesus really wants to do, really wants us to do, is to be radical with the way that we approach our sin. Okay? 
doesn't mean that we need to be pharisaical about it and start just, oh, I checked off these boxes. I didn't do this, 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 and this. But rather, he wants us to check our hearts and truly understand our own weaknesses and say, this is a particular area that I struggle in and I need help. And that's the only way that we can experience true change. One of the best applications that we can take from this hyperbole is that when we're tempted to sin, whether it's a sexual sin or any sin, instead of pretending like nothing happened, instead of pretending like, oh, whatever, I'll move on from that, we can recognize our temptation to sin and say, Lord, that just happened. I'm still thinking about it. Please, by the grace of your Holy Spirit, help me to stop thinking about it. And if I can't stop thinking about it, help me to keep going to you for help. Oftentimes we don't give the Holy Spirit enough credit for his work. Uh, But in those moments, Jesus loves to speak into our struggles. He loves to help us in our need. And sometimes we simply just have to step back and acknowledge that we are being tempted and ask for help. When we fight off temptation on our own, you can last a day, maybe an hour, maybe a few minutes. But typically, the harder we try to fight our temptation by our own strength, the harder we're going to fall and the more we're going to struggle. We don't really need to cut out our eyes or cut off our hands, but what we do need to do is daily recognize our own weakness. We go back to Romans chapter 3 and say, that's me. I'm a sinner. I need help. I need to go to the place that I can actually find help. So we can beat ourselves up every time we sin, but that's just not helpful. Jesus wants us to go to him. Sins like this may be a thorn in our side our whole life. We may have a particular struggle that we just can't seem to shake. But if all we do is just say, well, that's just part of who I am, part of my being, instead of actually taking it to the Lord and saying, Lord, please help me, help change this part of me, we're never going to see change if we just keep excusing our sin. The Holy Spirit can provide healing, and Jesus truly cares what we do with our bodies, which is why he tells us that we are to cut off our hands and gouge out our eyes. Not literally, but metaphorically, as he wants to gouge out our sin from our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this good word, Lord. We ask that we would take to heart this desire that you have for us to put our own sin to death, Lord. As one famous Puritan wrote, we need to be killing sin or it will be killing us. And we ask that we would recognize that and understand the danger of our sin and help us to turn to you because you are our only hope. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in. We hope this has been helpful for you. Please keep an eye out for more audio upcoming from WIS.